It's time for Fed Talk, the live show for Feds in the Know. From federal agencies to Capitol Hill, the attorneys of Shaw, Bransford, and Roth bring in experts from across the federal community to bring you inside the issues. Fed Talk is meant to provide general information about legal issues. However, the views expressed in this program are not intended to provide legal counseling. Listeners are cautioned not to rely upon any statements made in resolving legal issues they may face, but instead to consult with their own attorney about specific situations. Attorneys are not engaged in providing legal services while appearing on the program and are not responsible in any manner for the consequences that may stem directly or indirectly from reliance on any statement made during this program. Good morning and welcome to Fed Talk. I'm your host, Ben Carnes, and I'm joined this morning uh, by a couple of reporters who cover uh, the, the application of technology in the federal space. Uh, Carton Cordell, who's the senior technology reporter at FedScoop, and Derek B. Johnson, uh, who's a technology reporter over at FCW. And thank you, gentlemen, for being with me this morning. Thanks, Ben. Uh, so I wanted to, to capitalize on your respective expertise this morning and uh, just discuss kind of what's been going on uh, with the Trump uh, tech agenda. And I, I guess the first thing that probably comes to mind when people think about the tech agenda is is likely uh, cybersecurity and all of the components of that, the election meddling and um, uh, other cyber uh, cyber efforts. I know that there was uh, recently um, the passage of sanctions against, I think it was 18 Russians for confirmed uh, cyber attacks on infrastructure within the United States. So cybersecurity is sort of sort of top of mind. And uh, I know, Carton, that you had written a piece, uh, I think it was about a month back, that uh, references the national shortage of federal cybersecurity experts as being about 285,000 people, which is pretty alarming uh, given the, the, current, uh, the current state of things. So it, is that um, you know what? What is the sense in the federal government, and what are what are some of the efforts that are being taken to address that? Because especially when you have the Department of Justice, the Department of State, uh, the administration confirming that Russia is continually uh, ongoing uh, attempting to meddle in in midterms and other European elections and infrastructure systems, that's something that's on the news every night. And and knowing that the government is so ill prepared to handle it, what are the current efforts that are that are being taken to? Um, to address that, well, it's uh, it's definitely a problem in terms of workforce shortages, uh, and it will continue to be so just because cybersecurity talent is in such demand in both the public and private sectors. Um, the government uh, and the Trump administration are acutely aware of that, so they're putting forth initiatives, uh, some towards retraining employees, others towards uh, trying to build in curriculum to train younger generations to be more cyber aware. Uh, And then also maybe even looking at sort of a National Guard type efforts where they bring in cyber professionals. Maybe it's through the president's uh, national fellows or just uh, bringing in collegiate uh, talent to to try and manage this gap. Um, Another thing that is uh, come out this week is the ongoing efforts of OPM to uh, categorize the cybersecurity talents within agencies. Uh, the coding for those positions should be done this month, and now there's guidance that's come out that uh, requires agencies to note the levels of their cybersecurity talent and then uh, report mitigation plans for where there are shortages, how they're planning to tackle those. So a lot of different kind of efforts going on right now. And uh, Derek, you had written a piece, uh, the Department of Cyber, which kind of touches on the same challenges as well. Um, and 
I guess Microsoft has released uh, a white paper outlining the possibility of, if I understand it correctly, an agency uh, of, of cyber. Basically, it would be a cabinet-level agency that is specifically dedicated to governing all, all cybersecurity activities. Um, I mean, how how serious is that conversation right now? Are there are there people besides kind of you know thought leader uh, types and, and think tanks? Is that something that has gotten any actual traction uh, as as an idea? Because I, I assume it would require an incredible um, push behind it to to get that kind of policy implemented. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean it would definitely require a, a big lift to um, set something up along the lines of what uh, Microsoft has laid out, which is really drawn off of. Um, you know, best practices that they've seen as they've uh, dealt with countries um, around the world and, and and just looking at some of how their cybersecurity uh, consolidation uh, efforts are going. Um, you know, to be honest, I, I'm, I initially thought the idea of it was a little bit hokey just because, you know, having covered cybersecurity for the federal government, you, you know, you really gain an appreciation for just how dispersed and entrenched uh, these different um, policy authorities mm-hmm. are. Um <clears throat> but then again, you have seen um, folks like uh, Curtis Dukes, who was the uh, former uh, d- uh, director of the Information Assurance Unit at the National Security Agency, um, you, you, uh, uh, come out and advocated for it. You mentioned the Microsoft paper. They're actually moving towards um, this type of model in other countries. You know, the, the UK, Canada, um, the European Union put out a proposal uh, last year for. Uh, a centralized cybersecurity agency that would really empower uh, ANISA, which is sort of a small advisory body right now, but it would really sort of empower them to become, you know, the Department of Cyber, you know, at least as regards to, to EU. Um, but you're right. It's a huge lift. Um, and, you know, I, there are some folks who believe that the uh, lack of uh, coordination or the inability to coordinate um, very quickly is is a is a big enough problem to warrant seriously uh, looking into it, and then there are others who think that it causes more problems than it solves. And what I mean, what would that look like? I, I guess you know, maybe perhaps it hasn't reached the level where where there would be a plan of of actual implementation. But I guess the the concern is that it seems like the current atmosphere is just confusion and, and uncertainty. Uh, there was a, I believe it was in your story, um, Derek, where there there was a hearing recently and. Uh, the senators, I think, were trying to figure out who, basically whether U.S. Cyber Command, what, what they were doing uh, to respond to meddling efforts, et cetera, just cybersecurity. Uh, and uh, the, the answer was essentially that, that, oh, that's not under our jurisdiction. And there was frustration because it seems like that is emblematic of government-wide. There, there's some uncertainty over who actually has the ball and and who's handling it is that consistent with with your experience yeah i mean you know i'd say that inside you know if you work inside the government uh and 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 on cybersecurity you probably have a, a lot better idea of where those authorities get dispersed and why um for the rest of us kind of on the outside looking in it's it's not always so obvious and that obviously extends all the way to to, to members of congress like you said there was a, a hearing where i think within the first 40 minutes they Asked about, you know, what are you doing, Cybercom, to to combat election meddling? What are you doing um, to uh, uh, rein in contractors who sh- might show off their source code uh, to other to other foreign nations? And 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 what are you doing to strike back uh, at 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 Russia? And mm-hmm. I mean, 
you know, DSS uh, handles cybersecurity for contractors. Uh, DHS handles election security. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if Cybercom were to strike back at Russia, there's a chance that that could be considered an actual act of war because right. you have a military yep. uh, organization uh, carrying it out. Um, so there's a lot of confusion even among the people who have oversight of this issue, and and it sort of feeds into the calls that you've heard uh, over the past year or so uh, of people calling for sort of a whole of government effort, a, a consolidated U.S. cyber doctrine. Um, this is something that could potentially facilitate that, um, but uh, it, it, it's we're, we're not we're not close to, to to a consensus. They tried to do something like that with DHS a couple of years ago, and 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 it ran into a lot of trouble in Congress. It seems like the discussion is maybe honestly one of sort of lofty. Long term, this is where we would like to get uh, versus, for example, in the retraining that th- this is something that we can do right now because we need to do something to, to respond and fill the gaps. Are there other right now sort of uh, efforts going on to, to, to actually fill the workforce uh, gap for on, on cybersecurity? Because I know, you know, part of that was is also um, or correct me if I'm wrong. Actually, It's more a question for you. If you start retraining federal employees to do cybersecurity work. If you is it correct to view employees sort of as a fungible asset, if you will, like sort of like money that if you're moving them over to cybersecurity, you're just inevitably creating holes and not not ultimately solving the this presumably the source problem, which is that you just don't have enough good people coming in. But I, it, perhaps I'm wrong on that. Well, no, you're right. Mm-hmm. Um, the, you don't have enough people coming into the federal government right now, and you have a lot more needs. So uh, they're trying to find ways to use what they have, and that feeds right into the agency reorganization efforts that OMB is doing. And they're trying to use ways to leverage the talent. Um, so in the retraining aspect, uh, in the president's 19 budget, they called for, I think it was a $50 million fund mm-hmm. to put towards retraining at, you know, federal employees for some of those cyber efforts. And we'll have to wait and see how some of those reorganization efforts streamline, how many different roles get added, how many are in condensed. But uh, Tyson Metters, who's the NSC director of uh, cybersecurity, uh, he, he mentioned it. He said maybe the accountant that you have in your department right there has an aptitude for cyber, and we we need to get him on that. Uh, the other side of the coin, again, is then whether they start to try and leverage that from outside of the federal government, whether it's in the, the National Guard setup that uh, Will Hurt has talked about in the past or whether it's in using uh, you know, college students that might be leveraged to come in and work for the federal government for a little while for tuition assistance or something along those lines. They're trying to find ways to filter in talent, even if they don't have it there permanently. Mm-hmm. And, uh, well, I, I was just going to say, um, so you know, uh, we'll actually have to. I'm yeah, sorry, we'll, we'll have to pick it up uh, in just a second. We're going to take a quick uh, break for a word from our sponsor, and then we'll pick up that conversation. Make long-term care insurance part of your retirement plan. Long-term care is expensive, and it's not covered by traditional types of insurance plans. With benefits designed specifically for the federal family, the Federal Long-Term Care Insurance Program offers a smart way to help protect savings and assets and remain independent should you need long-term care services someday. Start planning for the future. Take the next step and visit ltcfeds.com today. That's ltcfeds.com. Welcome back to Fed Talk on Federal News Radio 1500. I'm your host, Ben Carnes, and I'm joined this morning by Carton Cordell from FedScoop and Derek Johnson from FCW. Both cover uh, technology in the federal government space. 
And uh, we were discussing, Derek, before the break, uh, the cybersecurity shortage and some of the efforts to uh, fill the gap, which nationally, uh, including the federal government, but nationally is about 285,000 and globally is somewhere between 1.5 and 1.8 million staffers in cybersecurity that we need but don't have, uh, depending on the estimates you look at. Um, and so some of those ideas include retraining. Um, some of the ideas include cabinet-level agencies. Um, and uh, so so what are some of the efforts that are going on? You were discussing the uh, retraining initiative. Yeah. So, I mean, basically the government is throwing everything, you know, it, throwing every tool in their toolbox at this issue. But, you know, like, like Carton said, um, you know, uh, Grant Schneider, the uh, acting federal chief information officer, has, has come out and said, look, we're not going to hire our way out of this problem. We are uh, competing with the private sector who, uh, you know, wants these – People just as bad as uh, as we do. Um, OPM. So there's a couple of. So in addition to the things that, that that Carton was talking about, there's a couple of other things that they're doing. OPM and and uh, on the military side, DoD um, have uh, built in a series of policies that allow um, agencies to offer things like retention bonuses to, specifically for cybersecurity talent. Um, in the military, they will consider paying off your student loans. They will help you move and and, and pay for that. Um, there are sort of all of these uh, perks and benefits that they're trying to build into um, federal policy specifically geared towards retaining cybersecurity talent. And then the other flip side of that is automation. Um, it's this sort of recognition that you're not actually going to – if you have 1,000 you know, positions, you're not going to fill those 1,000 positions. You're going to need to reduce your capacity or your need to have 1,000 mm -hmm. human bodies um, through automation at the lower levels. And that's sort of another way that they're really looking to tackle this problem because they're not going to solve it purely through through personnel means. I mean in covering the, uh, the current sense of um, – you know, Technology within agencies uh, on a daily basis. What what is your feeling about um, you know, with the release of the president's management agenda that obviously has a large tech component? Um, has the has the response generally been positive and specifically on the tech side been one that we are heading in the right direction? Because I I had pulled up there's a Harvard Business Review um, it, just a piece on cybersecurity's talent shortage and how to fix it, um, and it seems like uh, you know honestly. For as um, you know, controversial and, and politically tenuous as it might be to discuss administration policies for some people, it seems like generally the, the view has been that the management agenda has been consistent with best practices in the private sector um, and that generally on those workforce issues, we, uh, we seem to be heading in a pretty good direction. But uh, are, are there still concerns within agencies? I don't have a, a you know good pulse on that. Or are things if people generally feeling optimistic about where we're heading on tech? I think there's a uh, a guarded optimism there mm -hmm. because uh, people see a lot of the things uh, that they like in there, namely overhauling compensation to the federal government for the workforce. Uh, people have wanted to do that for a while, and they, they see this as a real opportunity. The thing about the PMA that makes it really interesting, it goes to the thing about government that's uh, the, the great debate right now is how do you break down the information silos? The PMA, instead of just taking on workforce IT modernization and data management has tied them all together in one mm -hmm. bundle and has said we have to build these cross-agency priority goals to to knock them all out in one go. Um, how they roll that out and the time frame in which they do it, they've talked about having quarterly goals to make sure that they're on pace uh, is going to be interesting to see. But uh, the administration seems to be really wanting to measure progress and make sure they're, they're going someplace forward and 
I think everybody's taking wait and see attitude to see how that progress mounts. Derek. Oh, and so, so I, yeah, I, I, that's kind of consistent with, with the feeling that, that I've had as well, which is that the, uh, it is, it is a guarded optimism. Um, and, uh, obviously it is, it's encouraging, you know, I guess there are two sides of the coin because on the one hand you have, you know, good, good efforts to, to look at the possibility of retraining and, and try to increase some of the things that we've, we kind of have jointly agreed that we've done wrong in the past on workforce issues. It seems like that there's, there's at least some, some sense of that. Um, but at the same time, uh, um, I believe, I believe Derek, it was your piece uh, on the IRS and on modernization efforts at, at the IRS. I mean, there's some, still some serious challenges. So even as you have this, this progress, I believe the number at the IRS, uh, I had heard that there are, I think it's under 300 people or about 300 people who are under or under 30 years old within the agency. It's something like that. It, it, it's an alarmingly known, a low number that yeah. uh, that speaks to the inability to pull in younger, able, um, tech, technically able people. Um, and it's uh, Derek, you had written on that the IRS uh, efforts uh, to, to modernize. Um, can you speak a little bit about what's going on there and and how that kind of ties in to the the efforts to modernize across the government and to shore up some of these these weaknesses? Yeah, I mean, I will say that, um, you know, it, it is alarming uh, at how sort of how little young talent there is at the IRS. But um, that as you know, given the fact that the IRS is technology, uh, a lot of their legacy technology is, yep. is, is 50, 60 years old and relies on on a lot of sort of ancient coding uh, uh, practices. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, that's actually not the worst agency for you to have a, a, an older and older than usual workforce. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it does sort of tie in and, and, and go back to. You know the 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 problem of modernization, and that's something that actually uh, plagues the IRS more than maybe any other agency. Um, and, and it really sort of ties into the fact that number one, they've been um, drastically underfunded mm-hmm. um, over the past you know decade or so. Um, and uh, the, the other is that they are always so busy getting things ready for tax season. Um, that they don't always have the time and resources to dedicate to modernizing their system. They're, they're always using their legacy systems throughout the year to get ready for tax season, and so there isn't mm-hmm. really downtime where you can uh, say, "Okay, we're gonna, you know, we're gonna shut this system off um, while we while we while we modernize." That's just not really a a, a, a possibility. It definitely seems like a, a keeping the airplane running with duct tape, you know, kind of kind of thing yeah. where they patch it up because uh, I think what is it, uh, thirty years old now? The, the programming language. Although I had seen some recent developments that seemed to look like, although I think it's an annual tradition that it looks like there's progress made on that, uh, on finally switching over, but it never actually happens. But it looked like in the last couple of months that there had been some some positive steps toward actually uh, getting that done. But obviously that's, that's one of the kind of cornerstone modernization uh, issues in the federal government, which is the entire tax collection system being based on uh, an ancient archaic system we can't find programmers for anymore. Yeah. I mean, the biggest, the biggest thing the IRS needs to replace is their individual master file. Mm. And I mean, that's, I think it's dates back to the 1960s or or, Mm. or, or fifties. It's, it's, it's crazy how, how old that system is. The last that I heard um, in a congressional hearing, uh, uh, IRS uh, CIO Gina Garza uh, said that to uh, get to that point to fully replace uh, the individual master file, it's going to take you know three to four years, and I think in the uh, uh, additional monies in the tens of millions of dollars, something like forty fifty million dollars. It's, it's um, actually, I mean, it's a pretty pretty daunting picture yeah. when you look at the fact that they've had, I think. 
budget cuts every year for I mean, at least the last several years um, down, I think it's 15%, and then their staffing levels are down 15 or 18%, something like that, yeah. in, since 2010. So it's you have fewer staff, fewer uh, less money, and then you also have the added demand of implementing tax reform as tax season is ongoing on the back of this this aged uh, and continually aging system. So it's it's a interesting challenge, you know, to to see how you how you go about um, addressing that is is pretty daunting. Um, and uh, so I uh, I wanted to turn actually a little bit. It gives a good segue into some of the agency efforts. Uh, to bring in kind of emerging technologies and to, and to innovate, which is often difficult in the federal space because the wheels tend to be uh, pretty slow moving. Um, and you know, before we uh, we started talking, uh, Carton, you were discussing that, th- that there are some proposals to try to to bring together under one umbrella uh, federal efforts on blockchain. And blockchain is a big buzzword that, uh, honestly, I, I'm of sick of hearing because it, it ties into bitcoin and so we've heard everything about bitcoin and its rise and its fall um and then within blockchain a lot of people are, are said to be excited about it and they speak in these lofty terms about uh, blockchain and its promise uh, but i i feel like i don't see a lot of examples of what it's actually doing so i hear on and on and on people talk about blockchain i, I understand generally the the promise that it brings of security and you know and reliability etc but what what does that look like within the federal government within agencies when when we hear about the the excitement and they're they're going to adopt it soon and they're looking at trials and they're running pilots what are those applications like how are they revolutionizing ostensibly um the way government works with blockchain right now or is it happening well it, it has a lot to do with the adoption process uh generally when you see an agency talk about blockchain what they're doing is they're starting up a pilot or a use case to test it on a very narrow aspect. So in this case, my colleague uh, this week wrote about the uh, Treasury Department uh, and their results on a blockchain for asset management. They tested on uh, how to track where agency uh, agency provided cell phones were going, you know, and uh, so and they said that they had some promising results and they're waiting to see more. So you have your pilot then you, you test the results if it works and you try to see if you can scale it up. And that's why you have so much uh, of a delay, I guess, in broader adoption. Uh, in, in terms of the wider uh, use of it, um, former federal CIO Tony Scott was in an ACT-I-ACT event this week and he said what we really ought to do is build a common infrastructure. So if we're taking stuff like payroll or employee records or health records, we need to see which agencies use that common function. Mm-hmm. We need to build the infrastructure for blockchain for that. So mm-hmm. you don't have a bunch of disparate use cases going on for different things. That sounds a lot like shared services, which the Trump administration and the federal government has embraced whole hog. Uh, they're really pushing that right now just for you know basic IT adoption. And uh, it's interesting to see what will happen it's certainly a good idea uh, in terms of the applications itself, but if you can really scale it up on a broad broad spectrum of agencies is going to be the, the question that needs to be answered in terms of that concept. Uh, so is the, is the idea that, uh, because uh, this is partly maybe um, unfamiliarity with the details of shared, shared services when it's actually applied, shared services generally would cover human resources functions. So the, the proposal would be to pull in blockchain un, under that same umbrella as a part of shared services? Well, it, it covers a lot of things. It covers certainly human resources. Uh, the 
GSA right now is really looking at it in terms of IT standardization and adoption. Mm-hmm. So if you're going to build a baseline for the IT systems that you're going to buy for the entire federal government and you know, presumably have someone like GSA run that, uh, that that's another use of it. So it would be saying if we're going to apply, we'll say HR for blockchain, we're going to use this platform for payroll or we're going to use this platform for you know, health benefits and looking at it that way. And uh, and Derek, I know that you have uh, have also done a bit on blockchain, and I want to pick up that conversation when we get back. And, and also, um, uh, I know that there are a couple of other examples of use cases that that have been uh, tested. I, I mean, I think the, the the sense is when we talk about blockchain, most people's familiarity with it is via Bitcoin, which is this kind of slightly scandalous, slightly you know get get rich quick. There's 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 buzz about it. Um, but then when you start looking at the, the that, that same buzz carries over, the excitement carries over to the federal government. They get very, very excited about it. But it seems like the actual applications, when you look at it, are are more a little bit, bit more modest. You know, you're talking about tracking cell phones and you're talking about and so it just seems like th- th- there's a reasonable call for some tempered excitement <laughs> and uh and and to to maybe toning down the uh the buzzwords a little bit but we'll pick up that conversation when we get back after a, a quick break and a word from our sponsor here on federal news radio 1500 make long-term care insurance part of your retirement plan long-term care is expensive and it's not covered by traditional types of insurance plans with benefits designed specifically for the federal family the federal long-term care insurance program offers a smart way to help protect savings and assets and remain independent should you need long-term care services someday start planning for the future take the next step and visit ltcfeds.com today that's ltcfeds.com If you're a federal manager, you deal with a lot of information. Here's a tip on breaking through the noise. Join the Federal Managers Association to have a voice on Capitol Hill. And to get filtered news and information specific to managing your workforce, join the 50,000 other federal managers who already subscribe and read the free weekly e-report, fedmanager.com. I'm Todd Wells, Executive Director of the Federal Managers Association, and I approve this message. Welcome back to Fed Talk on Federal News Radio 1500. I'm joined this morning by uh, Carton Cordell and Derek B. Johnson, both technology reporters. Uh, Carton works for FedScoop, and Derek is over at FCW. And we were discussing before the break uh, the the federal excitement over blockchain and um, some of its uses, or or the early stages of attempting to uh, to apply it within the the federal government. And Derek, you've you've written a bit on this. Uh, what is the status of it? What is, what does it currently look like? Um, some of these early efforts to to pull in this, depending on who you talk to, either very exciting or potentially underwhelming technology. Yeah, I mean, I I, I will say that as a reporter covering the federal government, covering mm-hmm. this issue is very frustrating because the uh, excitement and sort of the hype around it um, just is so far ahead of the on-the-ground reality in terms of what you're actually seeing agencies adopt. I do think that sort of the whole debate around uh, uh, blockchain would uh, benefit from a a sort of tempering of of our collective enthusiasm until we we really start to see more viable use cases that provide <clears throat> you know really measurable uh, benefits, whether that's through speed or or um, uh, uh, efficiency or or, or or other things. Um, 
you know, I, I have yet to sort of see that sort of killer app in the government that um, that uses blockchain that matches the sort of transformational business aspirations that people have when they talk about it. It doesn't mean that it's not there, but um, right now, I think as of uh, a piece I wrote in, in, in January, um, there was only one actual proof, proof of concept for blockchain-enabled uh, technology within within government. That was at the GSA. Um, there's uh, been a couple other uh, proofs of concept and, and, and pilot projects that have that have kicked off um, since then. But you know, you're not you're not, and you should not expect to see um, you know sort of a, an explosion. I don't think in this year of, of actual blockchain adoption. I think this is the year of uh, you know, 2017 was the year of education. I think 2018 is going to be the year of experimentation. Mm. And then if they find some really good uses for it, I think 2019, 2020 is when you're really start going to start to see adoption kind of explode. It almost feels like there's a flawed uh, assumption potentially or potentially a flawed assumption at the center of the excitement, which is you know, the excitement started because of cryptocurrencies, because of Bitcoin. But to, to uh, I, perhaps I'm wrong, but to, to assume that anything, you know, Bitcoin being built atop blockchain and then to assume that anything else that you build atop blockchain will be similarly successful. Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies were successful because they kind of filled a void and fit a certain need. That doesn't necessarily mean that anything built on top of that, that framework is going to be the same kind of gangbusters success. And it seems like there is sort of almost a presumption that because Bitcoin did well, Anything blockchain, like blockchain is almost this, it has this golden touch that anything that you build on top of it or anything you use it for is going to be inherently revolutionary. But um, it seems this seems like a problematic assumption because Bitcoin is its own thing and it was successful on its own merits and not necessarily, uh, doesn't necessarily guarantee success for an agency applying it to tracking cell phones or some other use case, it seems like. Yeah, and I've, I mean, I've talked to really, really smart people who see it both ways. Mm -hmm. You know, I've talked to really, you know, people who are far more technically minded right, than yeah. I um, are, are, are like, yeah, this is, this is legit. This is something that you should be genuinely enthusiastic about. And then I've, I've, I've talked to others who, who think that it's, it's almost like a scam. It mm -hmm. um, goes back and, to tempered expectations, I guess, yeah, which yeah. is just and, let's and, see what it actually looks like. Yeah, exactly. Let, let's let's see let's see kind of where we can find some 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 good narrow uses uh, of of the technology, and then sort of build off that rather than putting the cart before the horse and talking about how this is is going to change government or is already changing government when we're we're really not there yet. I mean, it's interesting to view it as as a part of shared services because it's. It's such a different uh, kind of mind-expanding application of it since you're you're putting it in the same categories, human resources and IT. So then blockchain is a service in itself from which you can pull. It's uh, it's such a new concept that it's almost hard to uh, to understand what that would look like within, say, the Department of State or the the Department of Defense. If you're if you're a manager and you have a uh, uh, you know as part of shares or you can access blockchain what that actually means there's just so so little education uh, at this point that it's um i don't think it, it it would make a lot of sense to uh to a lot of people um so you know another part of um uh, the, the kind of the two emergent technologies that we've heard back and forth are, are t tend to be blockchain um and all this these the mystical conversations about what that might look like uh and then of course artificial intelligence is kind of the other side of that coin that a lot of people are very excited about and you've both written uh, a bit about uh, artificial intelligence and and early steps to try to uh to use it because it, it it ties back to what we were discussing earlier which is that you're not going to solve some of these challenges solely by more bodies 
Um, so artificial intelligence is at least argued to be the key by which you minimize your need for more people because you're automating and you're you're making things more efficient. Um, is that comparable to blockchain and your experience and your coverage and what you're seeing right now as far as federal adoption? Is it kind of in similar early stages? Is it more promising, less promising? What are some of the efforts um, in the federal government right now with, with artificial intelligence? Because it seems like that one could be uh, a pretty useful key to, to get at precisely some of the challenges that are at this moment facing the federal government. I mean, I think it's funny because all the things we talked about, we talked about the workforce problem, we talked about blockchain adoption, we talked about uh, the president's management agenda. They're all kind of tied in together, and Derek brought it up very well uh, earlier about using automation to fill sort of that Mm -hmm. talent gap, at least on some of the skill levels. Um, Jose Arrieta, who's one of the the brighter tech stars in the federal government, was talking uh, last week about applying microservices and using AI. Mm-hmm. The thought being there is that if you can't replace your legacy systems and you do have a talent problem, uh, use some software examples that will automate at least some of your other processes to fill up your workforce or free up your workforce to, to, to work on other things. And he was really touting uh, RPA, Robotic Process Automation. Uh, there was a, an acting regional commissioner from the GSA, uh, Jeff Flau, who talked about finding a free demo and then using it in, in a, uh, a GSA meeting to demonstrate how you could just send out an email that would take your staff 20 minutes to compose and do it in 10 seconds. Um, I think that has very similar types of hype and excitement right mm-hmm. now that you're seeing with blockchain and where people say, well, we could apply it to this process and see how it goes in a pilot, and then we can see if we can scale it up. But the attraction there, again, is that you could apply it to your systems right now. So if you have a 50-year-old IRS system, Mm -hmm. maybe there's a software on the market that may not necessarily work with that, but can at least handle some of the processes that you find more time-consuming yeah. within your agency. Some of the analytics and the the, the processing. And it ties in, and I know we, we had discussed it also, uh, also kind of inherently connected, the idea of quantum computing, which I know that you, you've dabbled in a little bit. Um, you had mentioned off-air that quantum computing right now is pretty much an impossibility. It's pretty much so far off that the federal, it's not even on the federal radar, would you say at this point? Uh, I don't know if I would say it's not on the federal radar because there's definitely research dollars being put into it. And there's a lot of concern right now whether the U.S., uh, whether the federal government is spending enough on research because China is really big into it. Mm. Uh, Canada has a very uh, prominent tech on the Silicon Valley type area, the Waterloo Valley, where they're working on quantum computing. The question is, is when quantum computers are going to get to the level mm-hmm. of what traditional computing power will be. Now, once they get to that level and once they're more diffuse in the marketplace, then it's going to become a very big deal because that's uh, enough uh, technically, theoretically, enough computing power to crack any modern c- cryptography that mm-hmm. we have right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, some people have said it would crack blockchain, uh, which would be you know a big deal if it goes into wide federal adoption. Mm-hmm. So it, it is the thing that people are cautiously keeping an eye on because they don't want to build up too much hype before the technology gets there. Uh, who is with within the government right now? Are, who is the the body? Is GSA? I mean, it seems like GSA is often behind a lot of the really promising pilots. Eighteen um, F is within GSA, correct? Mm-hmm. Uh, which is kind of considered the crack, digital crack team within the federal government. Um, is, is it GSA? Is it? Uh, I mean, is it coming from any 
particular place uh, as far as who's saying that uh, or, or kind of who has the broader strategic view or does anybody have that broader strategic view right now of here's where AI stands within the federal government and, you know, where, where, where we're going with it. Is there that kind of high level view and, and who are the people pushing for that right now? Um, I mean, on the civilian side, I, I think GSA is probably a, a, a good bet. I mm-hmm. mean, <clears throat> on the military side, you know, DOD has its own thing. They're, they're, they're running their own um, uh, sort of AI-based uh, projects and pilots and, and systems. I, I think you know those three technologies that you sort of laid out. They mm-hmm. all exist on the uh, I guess what I'll call the speculatory yeah, uh, spectrum, yeah. where you know we're talking as much about what they can do as as we do what they do do currently. Right. Um, but they exist at different points on the spectrum. Like I would put um, quantum, you know, on the far end of the spectrum, mm-hmm. where it's so spec- speculative that you know it's almost you know all it's worth re- 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 investing in and researching, and you'll see a lot of stuff around DARPA uh, with that, but not a lot sort of in the general application within government. You have um, you know a blockchain where there's sort of some use cases, but it's still uh, pretty speculatory. And then AI, I mean, you it's not as far along in the public mm-hmm. sector as it is in the private sector but there's a lot of work being done um particularly uh, within uh, within DOD you know project maven and, and some other things that are that are happening and you know members of congress have come out and called for you know a manhattan style uh project investment in ai in the future to to compete globally so and i mean it's, and it's certainly nice i think i'm maybe being a bit overly cynical and unfair i i mean blockchain i think indisputably will have applications that we've seen enough to know that it will have applications that almost certainly save a lot of money and and make things more efficient it's i think the the only pause is just whether it will live up to the kind of expectations that have come out of bitcoin's uh success and making people into overnight billionaires and then breaking other people and and just the, the excitement that goes along with that whereas ai of course there's no question We've seen the value of big data and data analytics, and that's why Google is who they are, uh, et cetera. Um, I, I think we're, we'll, so some of the, the interesting um, – I, I guess it's interesting because it's – they all seemingly connect, basically, you know, uh, quantum computing or, or just more improved computing capacity, whatever form that takes, is kind of the key that pushes AI, which is the key that drives, you know, the, the other – uh, modernization efforts. Um, and then that obviously also ties in broader with, uh, you know, GEO had just released its, uh, assessment on, uh, how agencies should, um, go about using AI. So, so th- th- these are some of the early guidance on, um, here's what to do as you begin looking at these early programs. And so they're, they're having to begin looking at also how that ties into automated vehicles, for example, which, is over at the national highway traffic you know standards it, it it very quickly begins to pull in so many uh disparate pieces of the government that it begins it becomes easy to see how um how things become siloed and and kind of uh um how difficult it is to to govern it um uh government wide uh we had talked before the program are there are there any other uh kind of especially exciting um, pilots that you guys have seen in your coverage i've i've seen um uh, within gsa within 18f uh, some of the efforts at uh data.gov where they have uh, finally made all of the uh, finance financial data open for the first time uh, in government history i mean there there are quite a few of these major initiatives across the tech space that it, it becomes kind of hard to keep track of them and it seems like some of the good news within agencies and some of the innovative stuff doesn't always get out there and that seems to be to me 
the space that you guys often fill, which is getting that good news of, of what government is doing well out. Um, and so it, it's partially uh, interesting to me to hear what you see as examples of government done well and, and, and what's, what's going well right now. Um, and so we're actually uh, coming up on the final break of the show. But uh, in the last segment, I would, I guess, just love to get into a little bit more of some of these examples that we have of, of what agencies are doing to actually apply the technology and um, uh, what that looks like in the federal space. Uh, So we'll be right back after uh, a word from our sponsor on Federal News Radio 1500. Make long-term care insurance part of your retirement plan. Long-term care is expensive, and it's not covered by traditional types of insurance plans. With benefits designed specifically for the federal family, the Federal Long-Term Care Insurance Program offers a smart way to help protect savings and assets and remain independent should you need long-term care services someday. Start planning for the future. Take the next step and visit ltcfeds.com today. That's ltcfeds.com. Welcome back to Fed Talk on Federal News Radio 1500. Uh, we're in the last segment of the program, and we are discussing uh, federal technology and the Trump technology agenda with Carton Cordell, senior technology reporter at FedScoop, and Derek Johnson, uh, technology reporter at FCW. Uh, one of the questions I, I wanted to ask, uh, kind of going into the program, is uh, honestly, for, for selfish purpose, wanted to, be- to, to better understand sort of the current cyber space and, and the layout. We hear conversations about, uh, and we discussed earlier, shared services, for example. Um, you know, one component of that is uh, ERM, which is uh, in- enterprise risk management. That's that's one subset. And then you, there are all these kind of buckets that fall within the presidential, uh, the, the PMA, the presidential president's management agenda. Um where you have these kind of thought leaders like Microsoft and Deloitte coming out with this is what the ideal model should be. Um, do you, do either of you have a good sense of kind of what are those major buckets? You know, uh, AI is is obviously not a bucket in itself. That's something that's going to support um, the workforce issues. It's going to support uh, IT modernization, et cetera. But like what are kind of the, and perhaps this goes back to the president's management agenda, actually, like what the major technology buckets are that currently face or the challenges are that currently face the federal government. We're going to be talking about that document for a long time. I'm, I'm thinking, um, because it, it I mean, touches, does, well, does the president, is it safe to say that the PMA more or less covers that? Is that, is the, is the PMA sort of more or less reflective of what the actual challenges are? Are there other challenges that, that, that it fails to address? I mean, it, it I guess that's sort of ultimately what the question is. Well, I think it is yet another iterative document in a series of documents that have telegraphed where the administration is going. You had the EEOs, the executive orders that came out early in the administration, including the cyber uh, executive order. You had the IT modernization Mm -hmm. report. Uh, You had the agency reorganization. Those all feed into the PMA, Mm -hmm. and the PMA reflects those. The thing about technology and the thing I'm interested to see goes back to shared services because the idea of shared services with IT is developing a baseline standard of what Mm -hmm. the government buys. You won't have EPA buying one system and then have HHS buying a completely separate one. They would have at the core a standardized platform and then the iterations of technology that they would need that address their own agency missions Mm -hmm. come from there. So – you have your foundation, 
and then you, you you build up for the technology that are specific to that. Given that uh, the Trump administration has pushed shared services so uh, kind of vociferously, they've been very supportive of it. Um, is is there general support within the agencies? I've gotten some sense occasionally that there uh, there might be kind of this traditional problem that you run into a lot within the federal government of people being resistant to that kind of change because you see people potentially losing positions or people having to be moved around because you're, you're kind of upending the current system and, 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 and reorganizing. Um, is that enough of a factor that it's, it's slowing uh, the implementation of shared services? I mean, is shared services implementation a foregone conclusion at this point? I have no sense of that. Or is it just a, an idea that we're discussing um, I don't know if it's a foregone conclusion simply because it, it's not new to this administration. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Obama administration was the one that created the original Unified mm-hmm. Shared Services Management Office. Uh, it's been in discussion for for many years, and that's why I feel like it's going to have life after this. Um, the interesting thing I'm waiting to see, because, I mean, it, it does go back to, in thinking about uh, an event we had yesterday, Kelly that uh, she was talking about her time at the IRS and a program that she was explaining about paying your your taxes basically over the phone. And when she went out to a regional office to, you know, to, to explain that program, she was introduced as this young lady is from the IRS headquarters. She's going to tell you how you're all going to lose your jobs. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and so the hope yeah. is not really, I don't think, to have everyone lose their jobs, but to provide the tools so they can elevate that those higher level skills that they're going to be working on, they won't be working on so much of the, you know, the other mm-hmm. stuff that mm-hmm. they, it, the time consuming elements that they are working on right now. That's the hope. But uh, with shared services, we, we got to wait and see, like with everything else with the government, it, the adoption is small and then, and hopefully it spreads. Yeah. I, I mean, I think everything I've seen, I mean, is the, are, are the options at this point, because I, I, when I hear people talk about shared services, I, there doesn't seem to be any disagreement that shared services is kind of the, the model because I think it's kind of widely accepted generally that it's, it's kind of the best practice, but um, is the discussion basically shared services or status quo or is it shared services? You know, are, are there other frameworks that are out there competing with shared services or is it essentially we do shared services uh, or we keep doing things the way that we've been doing them for a long time? I think the concern is, is it goes back to cybersecurity is that you, you have these un connected and disparate systems that can provide, you know, a network in for attack. Mm-hmm. But if you have the, the standardized platform, then that way you're at least the attack surface is not, is not as large. That That's the hope. And it's also, you know, an economics issue of we're trying to streamline the way we buy technology. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why it's been sort of the flag bearer. If something else comes along, I mean, we, we're constantly talking about different technologies and different methods of application in government that could could be you know the one but the 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 one phrase i always hear is that there are no silver bullets you know, mm-hmm. th- this might work for this aspect of it we just have to wait and see i, I would say that the the probably the best way to look at at, at shared services i mean shared services is one of the core pillars of it modernization mm-hmm. it's sort it's not right. it's not going to go anywhere it's 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 prevalent in in you know in the private sector and and you are going to see you know a, a push i think the way to look at it is you know, under ideal conditions, shared services is an inevitability. But as you're looking at 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 uh, emerging technologies, you know, you, it's almost more instructive to look at the emerging technologies of yesterday 
when you're talking about government. Like there are still major agencies you know, like the IRS who still don't really have like a cloud strategy. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's still a yep. lot of cloud adoption that needs to take place. And cloud, uh, cloud adoption is something that feeds right into the concept of shared services. It, it, ma- it makes it makes it a lot easier. Um, it makes it a lot easier to deliver services for multiple agencies um, through the cloud. Um, you, you need to get there before you can get shared services, mm-hmm. and you need to get to shared services before you can start kind of really diving whole hog into some of these uh, more emerging technologies. Mm-hmm. So. Like that's to me, that's where government needs to focus. Well, I mean, going back to the IRS example, I guess it's fair to say, you know, if you're the IRS and your your individual master file is 50 years old, you probably need to get to not 50 years old before you get to AI. Yeah, you're not talking, <laughs> you know, about, you're not talking, you about, talking about quantum, blockchain. you know, at that yeah. point. Yeah, exactly. Right. right. I, I And I guess that goes back. I mean, when you talk about it being a foregone conclusion, I guess saying that it's in ideal circumstances is probably fair because it feels like to me it's shared services is this grand lofty term but again it's a pretty simple thing at its core what you're talking about i mean you're talking about just a pretty like the structure of so, so that everything is not you're not you're not having redundant work done essentially and it's the way it seems like it's the way it's a fancy name for the way most places are structured and so i i guess my my curiosity is are there other because uh, unless i'm sort of misunderstanding it i think it's essentially shared services or, or the way we've we've been doing things for a long time, which is that everything is sort of individually handled. Um, but are there arguments for things being individually handled or for, for doing that? Um, as a, is there is there out there a vociferous resistance to shared services because on the basis of anything other than I don't want to lose my job? I mean, is are there policy? Resist, is there policy resistance to it? I don't. So in the in the cybersecurity field, it's actually a really interesting debate right now mm-hmm. um, about uh, whether moving to shared services makes you safer or or uh, more exposed because, because it's like, a single injury, exactly right? like so yep, like exactly. Carton said you know it does reduce the the attack surface mm-hmm. uh, but yeah. at the same time uh, if you're using shared services and you have multiple agencies using the same yeah, system someone gets yep. into that system they've now gotten into multiple agencies mm-hmm. so it's it's sort of like an interesting debate I still think. Overall, the idea that um, modernizing and, and and connecting and moving to more shared services does make you safer than the status quo, um, but that is something that cybersecurity uh, folks in government are kind of talking about and debating, and sort of that'll be an issue going forward. Yeah, it is an interesting debate because you have, I mean, it, it's sort of fresh in mind for me because it was it was momentous in the administration's dealing with Russia, the fact that they came out and issued these sanctions. And they were interesting for all sorts of reasons. But the fact that they, they issued the sanctions at all and then came out and confirmed that uh, they the Kremlin had been behind all of these extensive um, attacks on infrastructure and on nuclear power plants, but they had not yet – they had not been able to at least ostensibly make the leap from sort of the industrial side or the uh, the commercial side over to the actual control systems. So, uh, in that instance, though, obviously those every, that siloing helps, right? Yeah. Like being siloed helps. Um, it's the same thing with the election uh, infrastructure. Exactly, yeah. You know, I mean, it's so dispersed throughout the state and local government that I mean, at the same time, that creates problems and there's outdated voting systems mm-hmm. and, and, and voting voter registration databases that are really exposed. But, you know, the you can uh, uh, penetrate a, a voting machine in one county and then you can go to the next county. They could be using completely different right. uh, equipment and machines, different processes, different chain of custody. So that sort of diversity can work for you or against mm-hmm. you. Yeah. So the individual, the individual. The individual targets could actually be easier to get into, but you might not be able to get as far into into the network. It's a, it's an interesting it's an interesting debate that we probably don't have 
uh, enough time to, to fully explore. But um, it, that, that, that was sort of my thinking is, is in shared services, that sort of seems to be, it, it almost feels inevitable, but I haven't seen a lot of pushback against it, which is kind of surprising because it's on the one hand, it's simple, but it is a, it is a major change. And it seems like they're, um, while it's overwhelmingly positive, I mean, um, th- there have to be other factors that go into to making a change of that. You got to do magnitude. more on top of it. But I mean, that's like I think that the idea is that shared services is the baseline from which you can build your modern security process on top of. I mean, rather than just trying to do it with the status quo. And uh, so I, we're coming into the last uh, couple of minutes uh, of the show, and I always want to uh, open it up. If, if you have anything uh, that you're, you're currently covering or, or writing about that you, you want to get out there or anything that you're especially excited about that you want to plug, uh, feel free to, to do so. Um, uh, otherwise, uh, I appreciate both of you taking the time to, to come on and, uh, and talk about um, uh, federal uh, tech policy and, um, uh, yeah, it, it, Oh, we had our big IT modernization summit yesterday uh, over mm-hmm. at uh, the museum, and uh, there's a lot of excitement. Uh, Suzette Kent, the new federal CIO, was talking about all the shared services and emerging technology aspects that they're currently working on. Doesn't um, FedScoop, and FedScoop has, uh, if I'm not mistaken, has another event coming up soon. The uh, is it the C-suite. Uh, C-suite event. I may be actually mixing up the the events. But. Oh yeah, yeah. We will be having something coming up next week as mm-hmm. well. Uh, in I, I would just say that there there's a lot of excitement, obviously, in terms of the modernization efforts on the whole right now. Uh, once again, t- talking about Kay Ely, she said that uh, yesterday that she'd never seen the stars aligned so well to bring this all together, mm-hmm. both on Capitol Hill and both at the White House. Uh, so I think it's going to be something that we're going to be tracking for, you know, obviously, the next couple of years. But it's something that seems to be a unified effort, which is not something you really generally see in Washington. Yeah, and that, that, that has been my sense as well, which is actually it's – as things in D.C. go, it's nice to have some some level of encouragement. And uh, Derek, is there anything exciting going on over at FCW that you have – that you're working on right now? Yeah, I mean I would just – so speaking of cloud, we have a, a cloud summit uh, coming up on the <clears throat> on the 18th of April. I'll be, I'll be moderating some panels there and um, just kind of talking about the intersection of, of, of cloud and, and, and modernization and sort of where things are in the federal government. So check it out. Well, again, Carton Cordell and uh, Derek Johnson uh, joining me today. Uh, thank you for tuning in on uh, Federal News Radio 1500 for Fed Talk. Happy Friday and have a wonderful weekend. <laughs>